welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. For our main story today, we're going to the Sun Belt, where GOP governors are overreaching toward 2024 in ways that could cost their part of the midterms this year. Come for the free bus ride from Texas to DC. Stay for our exclusive interview with Mickey Mouse. But first, we start this week with some good news out of France, which of course doesn't stop liberals from engaging their darkest fatalist whims. And speaking of liberals' fatalistic whims, it looks like Elon Musk might actually buy Twitter. Uh, We'll take that Rorschach test and see how it looks. And for one glimpse into a possible future for Twitter, we'll talk about the swift demise of CNN+. Hmm, Pour one out. Uh, It's never a good thing when the life of your $100 million investment can be measured in Scaramucci's. All right, should we get into it? Let's do it. Hey, Errol. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad I wasn't replaced. Lauren was great. No, no, we had we had a fun conversation last week, but it's it's great to see you back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. We're recording a little bit earlier on Tuesday just because the jet lag monster is bites a little bit harder when you're older. Don't recover <laughs> from those 12 hour time differences quite the way I used to. Whole whole new decade of jet lag for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like almost over it, but thank you for being flexible and recording this earlier. Happy to. Um, how was Singapore? It was yummy. Nice. It was really, really tasty. These people take their food very seriously. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues that we were with has this family company who has an office there and this office manager um, basically was like, here's where you're going to eat. Here's what you're going to order. And I'm just going to go ahead and do it all for you. Perfect. And, you know, and, and I'm going to provide you champagne. And we're like, no, 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 can't do the champagne ethics rules, et cetera. Cause we were with congressional staffers. And so mm. like, pretty tight controls on what you can do and what you can't do. So wait, you're not allowed to drink a glass of champagne if there's a congressional staffer present. No, no, you can, but you can't, at least for Senate staffers, I think you can't buy them out. There's some, there's some weird rules that, uh, my colleagues who work on congressional affairs were like very diligent about us following all these rules, um, which I very much appreciated. And we might or might not have picked up a couple listeners from that trip too. Um, all right. So if if those staffers are listening in, hello, et cetera. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. What was your favorite thing you ate while you were on the trip? Yeah, so Singapore is known for a lot of things food wise. And, and I don't know if this is accurate at all, but this was my sense is like, there's a, a sort of a joining of cultures. It's kind of a mix mm. of Indonesian and Malay and even some Thai influence, lots of Chinese influence. And they just kind of like throw it all together. And it's, it's kind of like a, a cuisine and quite frankly, a culture built on fusion. And so there were lots of fusiony dishes that, I have no idea what they were and I was eating them and I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever had. The one that stands out to me though, that's not actually fusion, but, but is the most memorable is they do these crabs, Oh yeah. they do black pepper crabs and chili crab. And like, I'm one of these people that doesn't like wings because they're, they're like annoying to eat and I'm just lazy. And so the first night we showed up and we went to one of these hawker centers so it's mm-hmm. like a bunch of food stands you've been to singapore right Mike? yep 
Yeah. So we went to this hawker center, the, the one that was in Crazy Rich Asians, actually. Oh, nice. Um, and so we went and it was torrentially raining, which it wasn't in the movie. But I went and they were like, hey, you want some crab? And I was like, yeah, I want some crab. That makes sense. And then they didn't give me any tools with which to eat said crab, which as a native Baltimorean, you know that that's slightly problematic. Yeah, I didn't. I am not a native Baltimorean and can probably count on one finger the number of times I've eaten crab before. And it was unbelievable. It took me about 45 minutes to eat the damn thing, but it was so good. Yeah, when I went, it was it was probably eight or nine years ago. And you did you get the black pepper or the chili? So I the first night I did the black pepper, and then later in the week I did the chili. Yeah, I was actually kicking myself after you were out there that I hadn't advised you to get the black pepper crab because that's like I don't really remember like what the uh, engagement was that I was out there for. You know, <laughs> I was in my consulting days, uh, but I very clearly remember the black pepper crab. It was pretty life changing. Yeah, no, it's, it's phenomenal. And I think the chili one, I think honestly, I, w- I would walk into a restaurant and they'd be like, oh yeah, we're going to do the no spice option because even the chili crab was like spicy, but I have a feeling when it's actually made for locals, it's kind of melt your face off spicy. <laughs> um, and it was not that I, I appreciated that. Yeah. What are you drinking today? So because of uh, aforementioned jet lag, I am drinking kombucha. <laughs> Lovely. And energy Synergy. kombucha. Synergy. Energy. Kombucha. Yep. Uh, guava goddess, which I feel like is like the energy I need right now. Um, yeah. Both sort of physical energy, but also like psychological energy. So what about you? Um, well, since we're recording a little bit earlier and this does coincide with uh, the onset of day drinking season in the nicer yes. weather, I've got a founders all day IPA session ale. It is just kind of a solid IPA, nice, uh, not overly hoppy, but but got a little bite to it, Uh, a little bit lower ABV than uh, your typical so that you can just uh, get started early and and keep it going. It's a very appropriate choice. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the news. Uh, Let's talk about the news. There was, we talked about this two weeks ago, but there was an election in France in fact, there was a, a series of elections, all part of the same election in France. And mm-hmm. when we talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, Emmanuel Macron was headed to a runoff with the far right darling uh, Marine Le Pen. At that time, I think I was cautiously optimistic that Macron would retain the presidency, though I also thought that it was entirely plausible that Le Pen could win. And that I think that like, plausible or plausibility and skepticism and is is well earned as you know i worked in presidential politics in 2016 so anything literally can happen well she didn't win so that pessimism was uh ill-founded turns out and emmanuel macron will have a second term he ended up actually you cue the air horn applause uh hallelujah sound effects uh yeah with like european accents (laughs) <laughs> no, I think good news all around, uh, which is why we wanted to put this story first in the first round, start continuing this like good news trend, uh, starting the show off. He ended up actually outperforming the polls uh, and winning pretty decisively. Uh, he had over 58% of the vote and Le Pen had uh, closer to, to 40. Of course, non-fire riders 
wasted absolutely no time uh, in finding cause to worry about the victory instead of enjoying the moment that they stopped the demise of European <laughs> democracy. Yeah, that, that stood out to me as well. Like it wasn't even close. No. Uh, but it was closer was awesome. than the last time. Sure, closer than the last time. But um, but yes, very much the um, kind of doom and gloom element of small L liberalism in general was was coming out in the wake yeah. of this. But but I, I think it's really important to point out that number one, it was not even close. This was a 17 point victory, quite decisive, notably larger than the victory Sean de Gaulle had when he ran for re-election. Uh, you know, being sort of the the prime hero of modern France. So important. Secondly, and namesake of a really terrible airport. <laughs> secondly, there was a really interesting and tough set of headwinds facing Macron in this reelection, right? He was the leader through the pandemic. I think that has been hurting incumbents all over the world. Uh, he held, I think, one rally before the first round and one rally before the second round of the election yeah. because he's been so immersed in managing uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And, and so he just really wasn't even out there campaigning for most of this period. Um, so I think given that and given how decisive the victory ultimately was, this is really worth celebrating. Agreed, but forty per, over 40% of French voters did vote for someone who in 2017 said, the policies that I represent are the policies represented by Trump and Putin. Hmm. Someone who said previously, and I quote, the progressive Islamization of our country is calling into question the survival of our civilization. Who also said, if you come to our country, don't expect to be taken care of, to be looked after, that your children will be educated without charge. No more playtime. 40% of French people voted for no more playtime. That's such like a cartoon villain line. No more playtime. It's, like, uh, you know, I think she lifted that line from Wolf the Dennis Stanson in Mighty Ducks too. <laughs> or like the neighbor in Dennis the Menace or something. Um, yeah, no, it's it, what I also found interesting and a little funny researching this was the quotes of Marine Le Pen and of Emmanuel Macron were wildly different based on who was translating from French to English. Mm. And so I wonder if there's like a no more playtime that's even more like playtime is over. So that was the line from Mighty Ducks was playtime is over. <laughs> so look, in addition to 40% voting for, you know, Le Pen, which was more than she got last time, there, there were plenty of warning signs in the overall data the election data showed that France is fragmented along many of the same lines that we are here in the U.S. There's a wealthy urban versus forgotten rural town dynamic. There's isolationist nationalism versus globalized internationalism. And, you know, both of those things sort of manifesting in this uh, increased gulf between the rich who keep getting richer and the poor who can't help but thinking that the system is rigged against them. So, you know, Macron, for his part, did seem actually, like, realistic about how he won and why he won and, and grateful. He said in his victory speech on the Champs-Élysées, he said, many in this country voted for me not because they support my ideas, but to keep out those of the far right. I want to thank them and know I owe them a debt in the years to come. So 
he has another five-year term now to, to make that happen. And uh, we'll see how durable his sort of leadership is as early as next month when there's going to be parliamentary elections in France. All right. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. So our resident tech bro, Mike Heslin, um, a couple of weeks ago, walked us through Elon Musk. And I feel like this has been like the roller coaster day Elon over the past. I think we even, you even recorded like a morning of correction at one point. Like this is just a really <laughs> fast moving story. Yeah. So is that fast moving story coming to an end? Do you think? No, it's not, but we'll get to that. So it's, it, it's, it's continuing with some interesting events. Yeah. So basically as of recording again, Tuesday afternoon, things could change. Um, stay tuned. Uh, the Twitter board, including at Jack, the founder had backed this sort of buyout plan from Elon Musk for $44 billion or $54 and 20 cents a share, which is a good $10 a share over what um, folks think that that this is worth. So I think there's pretty uncertain times ahead with this. And we didn't get into too much of like what's going on, because again, it's going to change. But one thing I'll be watching is if this does go through, and if Elon Musk does, you know, become the leader of Twitter, and we know he's not just going to be the owner and sort of passive owner, he's going to actually try to put his thumbprint on this. You know, how will Twitter change? Who will be let back onto the platform, etc. But I'll also be watching for whether those changes, if they do result, like I'll be watching if the changes result in, in the spread of more misinformation, for Mm -hmm. example, like, you know, if folks are let back onto the platform, there's no more warning signs. Um, and, and there's just a little bit more of a kind of the public square idea that he envisions it to be and, and whether honestly that spurs more regulation. So you would know better than me, Mike, but it, but it seems like Twitter has, like they have a set of policies and content um, sort of moderation policies, and they've largely self-regulated and stuck to those policies uh, on content and use. But if those policies and the self-regulation change, either they open themselves up to more regulation or Twitter becomes some sort of like 8chan truth source, truth social, like Frankenstein-y love child, which... In which case, like, peace out. It's been real, Gleeps. Yeah, so one, you know, factually, uh, the the board has backed Elon's bid. Um, it, it now goes to the shareholders uh, who will vote on it. Uh, I, I think it's likely that it will go through, not least because, you know, some of the other largest shareholders have announced support for the bid, although some have not, right? The... Uh, Saudi investment fund uh, announced its opposition. I don't know if they have changed hmm. their stance on it or not, but they have a large position in Twitter. You know, so so that it's a bit of an open question still. Then I think there's a totally open question about what Elon will actually do. Uh, you know, when right. he's at the helm of Twitter, assuming it all goes through. Um, when he first announced his bid to buy Twitter, I gave two pieces of guidance in that like frantic morning after uh, update <laughs> on the podcast. One was to watch for other potential buyers and two was to look at who's financing the deal. 
the fact that the board is supporting this move now after, I mean, I think it was all of like a week ago announcing a poison pill, which is like, you know, the, the one thing they can really do to block a bid like this short of going to the shareholders uh, means that there really wasn't a better offer out there. So other potential buyers, not a thing. The financing isn't 100% transparent, but uh, Musk did announce that he had secured $46.5 billion to support the bid. Uh, it looks like there is a good amount of support from Morgan Stanley that's a part of that, and that he's taking out a massive loan backed by his shares in Tesla. Wow. What that means more than anything is that, that there's another pool of risk for Tesla shareholders out there, uh, you know, over and above their CEO being totally distracted. Uh, if there's a financial risk. Right, a risk in that you know if if things start to go uh, south for either company, Musk could end up having to sell off a bunch of Tesla shares, which would be a really worrisome signal to the market. Tesla Tesla's uh, PE ratio is uh, is way outsized relative to other other car companies for sure, but even other tech companies now that have mostly seen a bit of a correction at the end of last year, beginning of this year, and Tesla really hasn't yet. So huge risk there for Tesla shareholders. My best guess at this point is that Elon will successfully buy Twitter, that he will start to get into these, some of these issues around policies and content moderation and get, I don't know if bored is quite the right word, but just start to appreciate that it's a little bit more complex than like Peter Thiel makes it out to be. And I think that Twitter will probably become a little better in terms of features. Right, we we talked about how they stagnated for so long and how how exceptional Elon is uh, in envisioning and building technology. And my prediction is that it will only really be marginally different in terms of content moderation. I think that could I think that could be right. I think we're going to see like less moderation of individuals, but I don't necessarily think that like all the Russian bots are going to be left you know, on what was it like 10 accounts were responsible for X number of, you know, viral tweets. There's some sort of, you know, I think that that stuff will still, that those protections will probably still remain in place because that's not what he cares about. Anyways, he cares about this public square aspect. So, you know, Trump and some of these others that have been banned from Twitter, I could see them coming back. I could see them, you know, getting renewed accounts. But the question is like, does that then descend into this, like, Frankenstein-y, 4chan sort of true uh, so social here's, thing. Here's why I don't buy the worst case scenarios. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that we saw things honestly worse than the worst case scenarios could possibly be happening on Facebook in 2016 with Cambridge Analytica, with uh, the amplification of Russian dif- disinformation uh, happening actively by the platform to a user base that was like 10x the size of Twitter's. And so I just, I, I don't think Twitter is that important that it will spell the demise of global democracy uh, or any, any of the other kind of worst case doom and gloom scenarios. But didn't that example result in the demise of democracy? Not yet. Okay. Just in, it's just in progress. Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's stick with tech for a second. And by tech, I mean tech-ish. Uh, so CNN tried to, to make a play into tech yeah, and it went super well. So it was supposed to be the future of news. It was a nationwide ad, ad campaign. Hundreds of people were hired. They brought over 
you know, popular Fox News Sunday host Chris Wallace, NPR's Audi Cornish, and of course mm. Eva Longoria, because you got to have Eva Longoria. This magical post-cable cordless future was to be called CNN Plus, mm. a new standalone streaming service that would bring the network into the 21st, nay, the 22nd century. Love that. Until turns out uh, it wouldn't. Um, <laughs> le- less than a month after its launch, CNN Plus will be shutting down uh, before the next episode of News and Brews hits your feed. So the main takeaway here is that unlike CNN Plus, News and Brews has staying power. Lean and mean, baby. <laughs> uh, similar levels of influence and subscribers and, and stuff like that, too. Obviously. Um, so CNN Plus was announced as a thing last summer, um, although it only went online in March of this year, and now April 30th will be its last day. The abrupt end to the dream probably came because Warner Media, who used to own CNN, uh, was bought by Discovery, and so they merged earlier this month into a new joint company called Warner Brothers Discovery. Hmm. Word on the street, aka in all outlets that aren't CNN.com, is that they want to do a, a new mega streaming service across that Warner Brothers Discovery. Kind of, I think, how like Disney Plus has like Disney and Marvel and Nat Geo and some others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. Other than like this being a $100 million oops, like I wonder if this is coming at an auspicious time for streaming. Like, do, do you think, Mike, that the pandemic streaming boom is starting to cool yeah i mean i certainly think that this is not a crash that's happening in isolation right like you say this is a hundred million dollar oops folks may remember that you know the start of the pandemic there was like a 1.7 billion dollar oops when quibi launched to much fanfare and then uh disappeared almost as quickly netflix lost 200,000 subscribers in the last quarter their first loss maybe ever uh, first net loss. Uh, so their stock has, has taken quite a hit as well. Um, I think that during the pandemic, this space got crowded, right? Uh, companies across the media industry fully woke up and realized that uh, we're, we're in a new era that is defined by streaming. Um, you know, I think the space is still kind of figuring out how to organize itself as well. Your point about uh, a discovery Warner Brothers mega streaming service is well taken. And, and I think you probably need a content library like that to be able to complete, compete with the uh, Netflixes and Disney Pluses and HBO Maxes of the world. Um, and I think you're, you're seeing some kind of re, re-verticalization, right? Where Netflix was uh, originally a layer totally separate from any content creation they now have a massive content creation uh, operation. And, you know, I think they're putting out like a new movie every week or something on Netflix. Um, obviously HBO and Disney uh, have both the content creation and now the streaming service, the, the uh, distribution service. Um, so I, I think you'll, you'll see something like that. I think um, as a news junkie, uh, I was hopeful that there would be a bit more appetite for a standalone streaming news service. But I think we, you can't overlook just the poor execution here. Yeah. Uh, CNN fumbled this. Like they, they brought in great talent, as you mentioned. Um, 
And a lot of times they just didn't showcase the best of what they had. They were showing like outtakes and bloopers from shows that are on the main CNN. The first time I saw CNN plus was when they advertised to me uh, to buy a subscription at a heavy discount for life, Mm. like 75% off for forever. If you buy a subscription now. That's just, there's no way to build a new brand. There's no way to create equity and to showcase the value of something that you're proud of putting out there. And so I think their, um, I think their, their rollout was severely fumbled. And, and so I hesitate to read too, too much into it, but I think that uh, your observations about the industry and, uh, and what may be better positioned from this company is a good one. Yeah. I mean, I think in addition to the re-verticalization, I could see this as potentially the moment where the industry starts doing what lots of industries do after a big boom, like they right size and they consolidate. And so this sort of Warner brothers discovery merger, creating the new Disney plus or whatever it is, you know, you could see in the future, the, you know, Amazons and Hulu's and Netflix is trying to um, gobble up some of the smaller players and incorporate them in, buying old historic content, you know, HGTV, for example, seems to be a ripe one um, that you could incorporate. So I, I think there's going to be something like this. I, I don't think it's the downfall of streaming. I think it's just sort of as people start going out to happy hour again, like it's it's a little bit more of a, a right sizing of the industry. Yeah, agree. It got, it got inflated for sure. I mean, it's the same thing you're seeing with Peloton and a bunch of other companies that boomed during the pandemic and they're just coming back to earth. Yep. All right. Should we move on to our main story? Let's do it. I can't wait. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of stories that have been simmering and we haven't really gone deep on, um, but are, are worth talking about together. So we'll start in Texas and important to stipulate a couple of things before we get into the ins and outs of what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Let's stipulate there are major problems with the U.S. immigration system and that there are acute problems that people in Texas feel more than those of us sitting in Washington, D.C. Most recently, uh, last month, March, saw 221,303 encounters between U.S. authorities and undocumented migrants at the southern border. That was the most since March of 2000. Notably, these 221,000 encounters were only with 159,000 individual migrants. So that's mostly because fully half of them were expelled immediately under Title 42, the Trump-era emergency pandemic action that Biden has continued, which allows border agents to return any migrant to Mexico immediately when they arrive, even if they had a legitimate asylum claim. Biden has said he will end the use of Title 42 in May, though he has not said what he will do once it expires to better manage the border. Yeah. Title 42 is one that that I've been tracking really closely, and I was very happy to see that it was revoked. And I'm guessing a lot of my friends in the government were also happy to see it invoked because, or revoked, because it it doesn't actually work that the 159,000 people having 223 encounters is a direct result of like, okay, so you're like, pushing them back and then they're trying again and pushing it back and like that doesn't benefit anyone and it's not actually having this sort of deterrent effect that you that you think it does yeah now now if you have a problem with what's happening at the border and you're a border state governor there are a bunch of constructive things you could think about doing to try to make the situation better 
Instead, earlier this month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered Did the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, ordered state troopers to stop all commercial trucks crossing the border from Mexico into the U.S. Uh, this is in addition to and after Customs and Border Protection conducts their usual inspections. This the, is wild. The stated goal of this policy was to stop undocumented immigrants and drugs from crossing the border. The immediate impact of it was what you might expect. Uh, commercial trade across the border got essentially strangled. Uh, for a trucker crossing a bridge into the U.S., it's normally like a 20-minute stop with CBP, was stretched into a five- or six-hour affair, sometimes more. You had fresh produce rotting on trucks. You had assembly lines not able to get their parts, stores not able to stock their shelves. Uh, and of course, this just exacerbates the inflation and, and shortage of goods we're facing to begin with. It's not like the supply chain had a bunch of extra slack in it. Yeah. Uh, Governor Abbott did end the inspections after 10 days and massive backlash. Uh, the Perryman Group, which is an economic consultancy based in Waco, estimates the inspections cost the U.S. $9 billion in lost GDP, about half of which was lost to Texas specifically. And that's not even factoring in the impacts from making inflation worse. Again, doing the exact opposite of what a worried border state government or governor should do. Yeah. So what did Governor Abbott and the rest of us get for that $9 billion? <laughs> Zero undocumented people, zero drugs, and zero other contraband were found on these trucks. They did, however, over the course of 10 days, cite 345 trucks for oil leaks or underinflated tires. So as, as Greg Abbott was trying to save face on this, he said, the tremendous number of safety violations could have saved the lives of Texans. It's, it's also a missed opportunity. I feel like he had... You know, in policymaking, there's always a difficulty in proving the counterfactual. And so he could have added an even more ridiculous claim, like, I announced this. So nobody came because it had a deterrent effect on, you know, people coming, which of course would be totally false. Turns out people are not hopping in, you know, produce trucks and coming through formal, like, border crossings. That's yeah. not Although, how this to be works. clear, he did say that too. Oh, he did? Oh, I yeah. missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Way to, way to prove the counterfactual there, Governor <laughs> Abbott. So there's another really quite humorous angle to this, Mike. A, a, uh, a friend of ours who shall remain nameless uh, sent this article to me before we recorded, and it's a, it's a New York Times article that I think we should go ahead and link in the show notes mm -hmm. that is uh, entitled... Texas's busing of migrants to DC isn't having Abbott's intended effect yet. And that the article is essentially, so one of the things that Governor Abbott was also doing was he was like, okay, all these, you know, folks are coming across the border. I'm going to like up the ante and increase the pressure on the White House to do something. And so his method of increasing said pressure was to put a bunch of migrants on buses and bus them to DC, where they got off the buses, you know, a few blocks from the White House. They were met by volunteers who were more than happy to receive them and help facilitate their onward journey to wherever they were going in the United States so that they could calmly and legally wait for their asylum, you know, claims to be processed. There was one quote in the article that from this guy, um, Chadrick Mboyo Bola, who's a 26 year old man. He says, 
I would like to say thank you to the governor of Texas. Um, he basically was saying thank you for the 33 hour ride on a bus that dropped him in DC where he had a nice facilitated onward journey. Yeah. <laughs> Abbott doing good things for, for uh, you know, irregular migrants. Maybe, maybe we're stumbling into some constructive solutions here. Um, the other, it, 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 it is actually on that point though, Mike, it, it is actually a constructive solution because the problem with 220 some odd people coming to the border is not that 220 some odd people, thousand people are coming to the border. It's that we have no ability to process that many people yeah. at the border. Right. And so if there is a better system of both adjudicating people's claims at the border, but then also facilitating their onward movement to, to sort of immigration courts and, and asylum claim processing centers that, that are not quite as backlogged, that's all good. Yeah, sure. So there was the, there was the argument uh, that you know, the safety violations they found on these trucks were saving lives. There was the argument that, <laughs> um, <laughs> that you know, oh, the, the uh, migrants and the cartels must have just known that this policy was coming, so they didn't put anything on commercial trucks. But there was another participation trophy that gave Abbott an off-ramp to claim fake victory. Uh, and that was the agreements that he signed with the four Mexican states that border Texas, saying they will implement security measures. So this is, again, fake, uh, because the states just basically committed to continuing plans they already had in place. So uh, Greg Abbott called these agreements historic, but I think he means that in the sense that historical markers along the highway are historic. Like they're acknowledging things that already happened in the past, but not really doing anything else. We have a lot of those in Texas. They're like little brown signs. Yeah. Do, do you know how much it costs to apply for a historical marker in Texas? I do not. A hundred dollars. So okay. this is really like 90 million historical markers. <laughs> I think uh, it, it's important to just mention uh, as we finish teeing up this, what's happening here, that there is some real political context around this story. So Abbott uh, is nearing the end of his second term right now. He's up for re-election this year. He cruised to re-election in 2018, but at that point, his net approval was like plus 20 and his opponent was relatively unknown. This year, his net approval is underwater likely to be hurt more by this $9 billion misadventure at the border. And he's up against Beto O'Rourke, who obviously has much better name recognition, both within Texas and across the country. Yeah, I, I have a feeling we'll cover this race again. I mean, one thing that, that Beto is really hammering on was the energy crisis yeah. and how mismanaged it was and how I think the governor and some of his cronies made a good bit of money off of hmm. people freezing. Um, and so there's some Look, I don't know if Democrats are going to be competitive statewide in Texas, but, you know, if anybody can do it, it's probably if, if anybody can can rile people up enough to actually go out to the polls, maybe it's better. Yeah. Yeah. So now let's talk about Florida. As you listeners may know, last month, Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law House Bill 1557, which he wanted to call the Parental Rights and Education Bill but became much more widely known as the don't say gay bill. The bill limits classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity specifically for, but not only for students in kindergarten to the third grade. Uh, to stipulate, President Biden was right to call this bill hateful. It sits in a long tradition of making LGBT people out to be a threat 
and specifically of homophobic and transphobic people in positions of power trying to associate being gay with being a pedophile. You can see this very clearly in all the conversations that this has evolved into about grooming kids. Uh, this, this bill solves no actual problem and its effect will be to make a bunch of kids, not to mention teachers and administrators, feel worse about who they are. I wanted to be, make sure we're very clear about that up front, but uh, uh, over, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically, Arrow. No, I just wanted to accentuate like this bill solves no actual problem should be the headline. Yeah. Um, so that's important, but that's not actually our story for today. Our story is about Florida's largest employer, which is Disney. When the Don't Say Gay bill was first introduced, Disney's recently departed CEO, Bob Iger, came out pretty quickly and denounced it publicly. But the company itself, under now CEO Bob Chapek, said nothing. On March 7th, Chapek sent an email around to the whole company basically saying they would say nothing publicly because they wanted to play both sides politically. Um, it is weird to me that Chapek could have become CEO of Disney in 2020 without having lived through any of the prior four years. But like, that must have been the case for him to think that they could just stay out of an issue like this. It's the largest employer in tourism draw in Florida. Uh, it's just wild to me. This is one of those things where like, if you wait, it's not going to go away. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so that was March 7th. By March 9th, the protests from within the company were loud enough that JPEG did come out and publicly denounce the bill, saying he had spoken with DeSantis out of concern the bill could unfairly target LGBT kids and families. Uh, at this point, basically everyone was unhappy with Disney. Its LGBT and ally employees were unsatisfied with the walk back. It was now becoming a national story that pissed off liberals and conservatives. Um, yep. However, by now, Chapek is also starting to realize you actually need to pick a side as an organization with a large voice. So uh, when the law passed on March 28th, Disney put out a statement that said pretty strongly that they would work to get the law repealed or struck down in court and that they would stop making political donations in Florida. Which was significant. Which was significant and significantly pissed off Republicans, uh, <laughs> especially in Florida. So you started hearing noise about conservatives boycotting Disney. The best thing to happen in this whole saga was from our favorite lumpy male fembot, J.D. Vance. Uh, he tweeted one day that he was boycotting Disney and literally the next day tweeted about spending the entire day watching Star Wars, uh, which is a Disney production. It's great. You, you, you love talking about him. <laughs> he just, he, he's the- It's uh, too easy. It's too he, easy. He's like the, the windbag that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, as a side note, uh, we are actually taking our kids to Disney World for the first time next month. So oh, no if, kidding. If all the Republicans want to continue this boycott, that's fine. Just guys, <laughs> shoot your shot, you know? It, it might make Orlando a little bit more palatable. Yeah, just like no lines. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Great. So all of this came to a head last week when DeSantis proposed and the legislature passed a bill to revoke the 1967 law that made Disney World a special tax district, where basically Disney administers services within the district, like firefighting, power generation, water, and roads. And in turn, they get a break from taxes. Uh, again, the largest employer in the great state of Florida. Right. Now, the, the weird thing is, um, it's not clear that Florida benefits in any way from making this change. Like, this isn't one of the tax breaks that are 
quite popular now, particularly among Republican governors, uh, the, the kind of tax break that states were tripping over themselves trying to get to Amazon during the HQ2 search, where companies get breaks like just for existing, right? <laughs> like build your factory or office here and hire the people you need to hire and we will give you a tax break. It's not that, right? The state will actually have to provide a bunch of new services as a result of eliminating these districts. Um, and if, if Disney starts reducing its investment in the state or decides to build a new park somewhere else instead, they legitimately lose out. Yeah, this, this seems uh, knee-jerk, not, not to assign such knee-jerkness to Governor well, DeSantis. But. Well, you don't have to. Um, I mean, you could sort of infer from that set of facts <laughs> that this was a retaliatory move. Um, but DeSantis also wrote in an email to reporters after he did this, if Disney wants to pick a fight, they chose the wrong guy. Uh, so I, I suspect we'll be seeing that email in court uh, in the not too distant future. Oh, um, but takeaway number one from this is that if you hear a Republican get on their soapbox about free speech at any point, just ask them like how quickly they denounced this action by Ron DeSantis when it happened, because this is literally the government punishing a company for saying words the government didn't like. Yeah, this is not cancel culture. It's cancel legislation backed by the power of the state. Also, excellent points. Also, Citizens United, like aren't companies people and, and allowed to like say political things and, and have a political voice? Isn't that like the whole point of Citizens United? Yeah, free speech. So free speech, um, you know, well, <laughs> well, I don't know if anyone's asked Elon Musk what he thinks about this. Um, He'll probably tweet about it. But at a, at a higher level, uh, it is purposeful that we are talking about this Texas story and this Florida story in the same breath, because it's a totally different set of issues, but there are very important similarities here. So you have GOP governors who want to be president, basically like finding a MAGA erogenous zone and learning the Trump era lesson that the way to win in American politics is to create conflict that keeps you in the news cycle. Yeah. That's cultural conflict specifically. Yeah. The problem for them is that in the process, they're getting out a little bit over their skis. The polls and fundamentals look really good for Republicans in the midterms right now, but this is legitimate overreach. Like this is the stuff that people hate to see governments do. It's hurting people across their state and not just the people they don't like. These Republican governors trying to play to like small business owners in Iowa for 2024 are giving Democrats a real opening in 2022. Re reached for comment, Mickey Mouse said, if Governor DeSantis wants to pick a fight, he chose the wrong guy. He added, ho ho. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren was on Pod Save America last week and said that Dems should be running on Roe v. Wade. I, I don't think that's wrong, but I think it's just one piece. The Supreme Court is overreaching on the Dobbs case that will likely overturn Roe v. Wade, but you also have Repu Republican governors and legislatures overreaching all over the country on this like wedge issue bullshit. And Dems who can come in, call out the game, call out how much of a distraction it is from the things that actually matter could do quite well in November. Yeah, and, and I wonder whether those nuanced government overreach arguments can credibly be made Credibly in terms of perception, not like I think they're credible, but like if people will perceive them to be credible coming from the messengers who for decades have been 
the ones charged with overreach. I mean, if you're a uh, Texan whose grocery store shelves were empty for a week and a half because of this like ridiculous show, and, and you froze, right? Uh, I think it Ted probably Cruz resonates. Was in Cancun, right? If you're in if you're in Osceola or Orange County in Florida, and there's a special tax district in your county that has nothing to do with Disney but is being shut down under this same action and is going to cost you and your fellow taxpayers a bunch more money, I think you probably realize what's happening. Yeah. Oh, the great state of Florida and the great state of Texas. Kindred spirits. We'll, we'll come back for a visit, I'm sure. <laughs> we can record live from Texas, from like my, my in-laws or my parents' house. Yeah, I'm in. Okay, cool. Should we get to some spicy nuggets? Let's do it. You go first. <laughs> All right, so uh, my spicy nugget, we didn't really talk about Ukraine much this week. There has been a lot of things happening. Um, the the war is, as we mentioned previously, ha- has entered a new phase. This phase is marked by some really interesting uh, and different dynamics than previously. I think it'll be a couple weeks still until we really know militarily what is going on, and, and we'll talk about it as we learn more. But we're starting to see the fight come home a little bit to Russia, uh, specifically there have been some sabotage events at oil depots, police stations, rail infrastructure all over the country of Russia that, you know, uh, every day it seems like there's a new fire or explosion breaking out at one of these facilities. The Russian administration, the Putin administration, has been remarkably silent on these things, suggesting they don't really know what's going on and they're quite worried about it. And it is likely coming from Uh, an element within Russia. Um, If it were coming from an element with like from outside of Russia, it's all they would be talking about because it would confirm all of their conspiracies about like the whole world out to get them. Right, right. Uh, Now, what Putin did come out and announce is a uh, quote unquote terrorist plot they uncovered. The uh, allegation is that there was a neo-Nazi group plotting to assassinate a man named Vladimir Solovyev, who is a Russian TV anchor, uh, you know, one of the the nearest and dearest propagandists to Putin. Um, You know, he's out there calling for more, not less uh, war crimes to happen and things like that. Um, And the allegation was that this neo-Nazi group was going to assassinate him. The FSB released a video purporting to show the evidence they uncovered of this plot uh, with just a number of like hilariously ham-handed fabrications that make it very clear that this was an FSB operation from start to finish. The best one is they flash at one point to a table covered with the belongings of this supposed neo-Nazi group, including, you know, a, a Nazi flag and some clothing with various insignias on it and some weapons and Uh, And it's clear that they wanted to show SIM cards that this group would have been using for communication, but whoever was charged with going out and buying the SIM cards instead went out and bought three The Sims video games. (laughs) And so you see them on the table. We'll include the picture in the show notes, but it's really excellent. And, uh, and, And that's our update from Russia. 
That was a really long lead into a spicy nugget and totally worth it. <laughs> so, so my spicy nugget this week is a bit of a rant. Um, a couple hours ago, we are, so as listeners will know, we are looking for a new house and we had put a place, uh, put an offer on a place last night, found out earlier today that once again, for the third time, uh, we came in second and this was one that we actually thought we had in the bag, um, because it, it was a great location and we weren't the only ones that, that thought that, but we were sort of, we wanted the house so much. We were, we were willing as our realtors said to be slightly irrational, mm-hmm. um, not like put ourselves in golden handcuffs, irrational, but like, you know, pretty irrational. Well, it turns out there was someone who wanted to be even more irrational than, than us and without getting in, into numbers, these people put 60% down, like their down payment was 60% of the cost, which doesn't make any logical sense. And so my spicy nugget is the housing market is still crazy. Yeah. As evidenced by the fact that there are people who are willing to buy a house for, I don't even know the math. I think this was probably 35% over asking. And they were willing to put 60% down to make that happen. And I was just like, if you're putting 60%, if you have that much, you know, Russian or Chinese or tech bro cash or whatever it is, like, why are you going for that? Like, why don't you leverage that into more? Also, give me back my house. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Steps gingerly off soapbox. Cute. Womp, womp. Womp, womp, womp. Back to the drawing board. Lauren doesn't listen to the podcast anyway, so I don't have to worry about her, uh, you know, agreeing or disagreeing with any of that. Uh, Folks will just have to take my word for it. You'll live to fight another day. Let's hope. Uh, I heard uh, a house is coming on the market around the corner from y'all. So fingers crossed. We'll cover that next week. (laughs) Good to see you, Mike. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabake. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, April 26, 2022 at 4 p.m. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.